Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. Good morning, word musicians. It's another glorious winter day here in Edmonton, and I'm starting my first homage of 2023. There are a lot of deceased Canadian poets I would like to honor, and there are some who died that I frankly don't want to honor. Uh, but I'll still probably mention them at some point because they and their work existed and mattered to some. Uh, hopefully more than some. You never know in this vast land where we're all trying to yawp across immense distances. So Diana Brebner, I never met her, uh, but her book, Radiant Life Forms, which came out in 1990, uh, well, I've had since, you know, about then. So very, very, very early on in my writing life, well, I'd go to the Burnaby Public Library and I would read absolutely every single Canadian poet in that section of the library, completely non-discriminating, which is how I believe you should be when you're, you know, very young and, and just starting to get a sense of what's going on out there. Um, don't pick favorites right away. Um, read everything. So I found Diana Brebner's Radiant Life Forms then and read it in the library. And then later on, I purchased it, I believe, at a used bookstore somewhere in Vancouver. And I've still gone back to it over the years. I'm I'm more critical of it now than I used to be because, of course, I know much more about poetry than I did, uh, just in terms of maybe overgeneralizations that can happen or abstractions in her work. But she definitely speaks about grief beautifully. She's a lot of emotion embedded in her line breaks. And uh, I love her work about the natural world. So I'm just going to read a few little things I found online about her. There isn't that much because when she died, well, she was born in May 20th, 1956 in Kingston, Ontario, and she died April 29th, 2001 in Ottawa. So she was only 44 years old, died of breast cancer, had two young daughters, and, uh, you know, she there wasn't social media uh, rampant, you know, obsession. Well, it just didn't exist even in 2001, right? So it's all very recent where, you know, we can be smeared all over the internet and there's all kinds of material. Um, back then, there just really wasn't very much. You might have a Wikipedia entry. Uh, you know, you might have a few interviews or reviews on your work. But with Diana Brabner, there's really not that much. She appeared in uh, the New Quarterly uh, quite a few times. And it says there's an interview with her, but it's not accessible. Um, mostly where you'll find a note of Diana Brebner is in the prize that ARC Poetry Magazine offers every year to honor a capital, national capital region poet, the best poem written by them who've not yet been published in book form. So that's, you know, potentially a, a wonderful tribute. Um, she received the Archibald Lampman Award when she was alive and I'm going to read a little blurb on her, uh, written by uh, a writer connected to the Arc Poetry Award. And this was written in 2009 to describe why she was being honored with this annual prize. 
It says, the award-winning Ottawa-based poet Diana Brebner never understood poets who hoarded their ideas or were afraid to share their insights with the less experienced. She always wished she'd had a mentor. I find that interesting because almost every poet seems to have a mentor early on, but I I don't really know much about how she, you know, started writing poetry and, and her beginnings. So there were aspects of her craft she felt she might have learned more quickly with guidance, possibly. This may be one argument for MFA programs, BFA programs. But yeah, at the same time, quickly, why do we need to learn quickly? It's all an organic process. Okay, so as a working mother of two young daughters and a poet struggling with breast cancer, she must have been acutely aware of time. In the role of mentor herself, Diana was both a mother and an unrelenting taskmaster. She was a strong believer in details. Indeed, every aspect of submission was scrutinized down to the handwriting on the SESI. Hmm, interesting. The significance of intention behind every action, whether writing a poem or drinking a cup of tea, was of the utmost importance to her. That's, that's amazing. Uh, I both admire that and feel that it would be rather stressful to live with. Diana would have strongly approved of an award that invites emerging Ottawa writers to be recognized for their talent. This contest is the perfect legacy for such a generous poet. Yes, okay, so that's why we have a prize in her name. And then I found a review written by Jenna Butler uh, way back when her uh, collected posthumous poems called The Ishtar Gate came out. And this was... Um, championed by uh, someone, someone who was very influenced and by her, and also um, I think a friend as well, uh, a compatriot for sure, Stephanie Bolster, and she writes the introduction to this book and and has created this selection of of poems, and that's that's wonderful. You can pick up the one book, The Ishtar Gate, and get samplings from all of her works. Uh, new and selecteds are, are wonderful, though also Radiant Life Forms, of course, I would recommend it as an individual collection. So I'm just going to read you a few fragments from this review. There is no turning back from fear or joy, Diana Brebner writes. And this line hints at the vast and at times brutal scope of the work contained in her final posthumous collection. Then Butler says, Brebner is not an easy poet to read. It's interesting defining what ease is because I find Brebner's style extremely accessible but um, Butler finds that her writing about goddesses and angels uh, her tone being taut and serious has this power that I suppose you can shrink from in a sense Uh, as Stephanie Bolster points out in her foreword there was no mediation between poem and audience no apology Take it or leave it, she seemed to say. If you find this too sentimental, too elemental, that's fine. There are other poets to come, which is, again, both admirable and also kind of a sense of uh, shirking of possible responsibility for revision or, you know, strengthening your work um, due to a criticism. So, yes, absolutely be firm about your stance towards your work. But also, you need to have a certain open fluidity towards possibilities of of reconstruction. If you find you're slipping into too many abstractions and detachments. 
So much of the ambivalence Butler says surrounding Brebner's poetry stems from the tension in her work is driving power of abstraction, but also this reliance upon abstraction, the refusal by the poet to give the audience the relief of concrete references makes her poems brilliant. They could be stilted and a little clumsy, but they can also be utterly fierce. Um, so there's lots of mystery and displacement. Uh, she had a predilection for traditional verse forms, which was deemed retrograde by many Canadian poets during the 80s and 90s. This is Stephanie Bolster speaking in her introduction. So that heightened her isolation. Wow, talk about the clique, eh? Uh, yet her perverse playfulness was such that one wonders if she chose this path in protest, the traditional as a daring opposition to the norm of free verse and to ensure the marginality that granted her independence and privacy. Ooh, I love that. Ensuring your marginality. Yes, great position of freedom to not ever be lauded as following the trends, uh, you know, what seems to be de rigueur or, you know, of the moment. And so you can just go your own way. So uh, she didn't really use that many traditional verse forms, but she definitely uh, was focused on the visual uh, structure of her stanzas, which I truly appreciate. The poem I'm going to read, the long piece in three parts called The Sparrow Drawer, is all in very taut couplets. So then Butler continues, The beauty in this poetry is in a heightened awareness of the inner world. Brebner is a woman unafraid to confront pain and what it means. She speaks of death, abuse, and loss with equanimity, acknowledging their power and yet refusing to allow them autonomous voice. Her poetry sings with what has been broken. There is no respite from the ugly in this book, though violent events and memories are presented in a calm manner, making their very restraint disturbing. There's no mediation, no attempt to airbrush. This is a lush collection. Okay, thanks, Jenna Butler, for that. All right, so I'm going to open up the only Diana Brebner book I have that I've reread many times, Radiant Life Forms, and I'm going to read for the first time aloud uh, to more than just myself the long poem called The Sparrow Drawer. It's in three parts, as I said, in couplets, and it is actually about a very tangible, focused set of experiences with her daughters and the Natural History Museum and birds and her sense of herself in relation to the natural world. So thank you, Diana Brebner. The Sparrow Drawer. One, the Sandhill Crane. The Sandhill Crane in his glass case performs his nuptial dance. Jumping, bowing, and wildly flapping, reads the museum description. Well, aren't we all the same in love? This dead male is frozen in the pose on a bed of stone. Thus, the museum welcomes us to its permanent exhibit, Birds in Canada. When I bring my daughters to the museum because it is cleaner and easier than a day in the bush, they always ask to see the birds or the big animals, and I tell myself, this will do them good. They know enough about mud, rain, being hungry, no toilets, and wanting to go home. In the real world, a bird is always gone before my two-year-old can look. Or alternately, I can never find the great blue herons they insist are really there. Two, birds by number. In the eastern hardwood forest, 33 birds are mounted on log pedestals, each in a pose that is meant to be lifelike. 
I remind myself these are dead bodies. I have no memory for useful things, but I can remember my first sighting of migrating snowbirds, Junco hyamalis, in Algonquin Park, the rose-breasted grosbeaks at the feeders near the cabin, the enormous black-and-white pileated woodpecker, Dryocopus pileatus, with its blood-red crest, up near the cliffs at Luskville. I can tell you where and who was with me down a great list of the birds I believe forgotten. My daughters learn birds by numbers, matching a numbered body with a name and a list given in three languages, as if that will make them real. The fact is, my girls enjoy this. They call them doll birds. And the bird names are repeated solemnly as if each name were part of a spell. And I do it too. For who can say this is not reverence, a litany, a prayer, a wish for something promised? The name of one woman who died finds its way to the list. And I remember my first sighting of a rare old man I loved. Three, the sparrow drawer. It is time for us to be leaving. Somehow we find ourselves before one final display. It is the same forest rearranged by seasons and including the ducks, herons, owls, and hawks that are familiar to the forest, as they call the example of hardwood forest that is local and ours. And then, beneath the glass cases, my eldest daughter finds two drawers. Above them, a simple label reads, Would you like to know more about birds? How many times did I bring that other child to this place? We never found these boxes. And they are not hidden, merely unexpected. The first lights up as we pull it out. Eggs. Large and small. Blue, green, mottled beige, brown. Great white goose eggs, the hummingbird's egg glowing, a white pearl all in rows, labeled an old child's collection. And the second drawer opens quietly and as easily as the first, lights up, displays its contents. This is the sparrow drawer. No one has gone to any trouble to make this look pretty. Dead sparrows lie in an uneven row, their bodies in disarray, frozen on snow, which is also synthetic batting, with black plastic arrowheads stuck in strategic areas to accentuate their differences. The caption tells us, All sparrows look alike to the untrained eye. They are difficult to tell apart in the field. Chipping sparrow, savannah sparrow, Lincoln sparrow, song sparrow, swamp sparrow, and alone, beneath the line of identical bodies, a pine siskin, just to show us how even one species can be mistaken for another. And what have I seen hovering in a field? I could swear it was the child I have lost. Love, I have learned the hard way. How many hovering boys in schoolyards look just like him? Of course, I don't want to see this or the dead birds, and I close the drawer. But my girls will not leave it alone. They open it. I close it. They cry. So we open it again. We say the names of the different sparrows. I tell them that any creature once named cannot be forgotten. This, I believe. You see, there are no numbers there, only names. The pine siskin trembles at the bottom of the drawer as we roll it shut. You've been listening to Miss Lyric's Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.